So as we are going through the book of Romans, we're now in chapter 6, right? The psalm that we read today was talking about how the children of Israel, when they were brought out by God in order to take them to a place that God wanted to be them to, for them to be, it says that they were complaining. Part of that complaining had to do with they thought they had a better where they were before. Reminded me of Ecclesiastes 7.10 that says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you asked this. In the times that we're living right now of total depravity on display, of difficult and hard times right now and difficult times ahead, many times we may think, why can't we just go back to fill in the blank, whenever? Let us remember, our brothers and sisters, that the scripture says having that question or having that longing of going back to something previous is not from godly wisdom. It doesn't mean that things were not necessarily better. Nevertheless, that is not what we are to aim for. We are to aim for what is to come. The sermon today is going to be about the fact that if you are a child of God, we are pilgrims through this world, and we are to look to what is to come, to our citizenship in the kingdom of God. And if we are Christians, that citizenship has already begun. It's not something that is ahead. So as we think about these things, let us pray and ask that the Lord would bless his study of the word this morning. If you are able, let's please stand. Turn to Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. The inerrant word of God reads as follows. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we study your word this morning, as we consider what your Holy Spirit is telling us through this inspired text, we thank you that you draw us unworthy sinners to yourself. We pray, Lord, this morning that through your word we are convicted of our sin so that we may turn to you in repentance. May the glorious truth of your gospel and being united with Christ be understood by our minds and our hearts. 
whether it is for edification for your saints or whether it is for salvation for those that you are calling to faith in you. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I titled today's sermon, United with Christ, Separated from Sin. It's kind of a follow-on to the sermon that we heard last week from Brother James. As we are immersed in the book of Romans, let us take a recap of where we've been. Paul is teaching Romans, the church at Rome, a method known as the diatribe, teaching, answering anticipated objections based on its audience. And in a nutshell, we thus have heard that God is holy, people are sinful. The way we could summarize this is as follows. Up to now, I have made a, a quick outline, outline here. The first three chapters of Romans deals with condemnation. All have sinned. All have gone astray. Both those that thought they were good, meaning the Jewish people, the people of God, and the Gentiles. No one is excused. All are guilty. Romans chapters 4 and 5 deal with justification. If it's not by being part of the Jewish people, if it is not being ignorant of the law of God that we are made right with him, then how are we made right with God? Justification. And we learn that it's the same way that Abraham was justified. By faith. Now as we delve into chapter 6, the chapters 6 through 8, give or take, now talks about sanctification. Because we are people of God, because we are saved, we're going to go through this process where day by day we become more and more like Jesus. A key aspect of cults and non-biblical religions, even though they claim to use the Bible, is that they want to sanctify themselves, quote-unquote. In other words, they want to do good things in order, in order to be justified. They have this backwards. Right? They know that they are condemned before God. It's obvious. But then they try to do good works in order to be saved. It will never happen. Rather, because we are saved, we are called to be sanctified. And this is what we will expound upon today. In other words, God is so holy, so separated from evil, that he cannot and will not accept anything other than perfection in order to be at peace with him. That's something that humans cannot do in and of ourselves. We are dead in sin and guilty before a holy God. Want to talk about equality? A lot of talk about that, especially this month. That's the equality we can all agree on. Everyone's doomed. Everyone is condemned. Okay? So let us bring our attention to the thought pattern that Paul is developing in this section of Scripture. Finishing up chapter 5, Paul made the point that where sin abounded, where there was a lot of sin, a lot of depravity and filth, he said grace abounded even more. When someone is lost in their sin, the grace of God abounds to draw them, to save them, to rescue them. That is an act of God through the power of our Holy Spirit. Not something that we can do. 
Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. With that said, Paul then opens the first verse in chapter 6 saying, okay, well, if we are good and grace abounds, then what should our mentality be? And he asks a question, Romans 6.1. It says, well, shall we say then, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Like, do we have a media? Can I just go and do whatever I want? Let us consider something. How many of us have done something to hurt a loved one? Your spouse, your child, your parent. And I'm not talking about, I forgot to take out the trash. And now my wife has to do it. That happens more than I like to admit. And she's frustrated by that. I'm talking about serious issues. Something that causes a broken heart. Something that causes a scar that it hurts. Someone's really hurt you. Or you really hurt someone. Have we ever done that? I think I have. And in those circumstances... How many of us have been forgiven by that loved one that we've hurt? Again, I say I've been benefited by someone's grace toward me that they've forgiven me for something that I've done to them that is very bad. Now, how foolish would it be if you were to say, well, my loved one, my spouse, my parent, my son, etc. They love me so much that they forgave me. So in order to see and to show everyone how much they love me, I'm going to go and hurt them again. How foolish would that be? Does that mean that I'm actually feeling sorrow for my sin and I'm being repentant of my sin? No, it doesn't mean that. I was never repentant. Hopefully now we can see Paul's point. If God has shown us grace after sinning against him, can we then live in sin so that grace may abound? Paul says, may it never be. God forbid. Because if we truly have been born again and forgiven by God's grace, that old person, that old nature that was an enemy of God, that old nature that was slaved to sin, is dead. That nature has been buried. So with that in mind, let's ask then what is Paul's main point in this text, which follows that thought pattern. And it is this. If you are united with Christ, the old self has died. And there's a new self that lives not to keep sinning so that God's grace may be shown, but a new nature that lives a life that glorifies Christ. United with Christ means you will be separated from sin. We're going to see that in our text today in three points. First, what does it mean to be united with Christ? Right now, each one of us is either united with Christ or you are united with sin and only sin. All of us fit in one of those two categories. There's no in between. What does it mean to be united with Christ? Secondly, what are the characteristics of true union with Christ? Paul gives us some very explicit 
examples of what it means to be in true union with Christ. And then, if we are united with Christ, and there is proof that we are, there should be some results. There should be some benefits that we can reap from that union. All right? So, united with Christ. What does that mean? We see this in a collection of some of the verses that we just saw. We're going to read each of those snippets now. The first portion of Romans 6, 5 says, For we have been united with him in a death like him. Romans 6, 6, the first part says, We know that our old self was crucified with him. Romans 7, 8 says, For one who has died, Romans 6, 8, the first part of that says, now, we, if we have died with Christ, Romans 6.10, the first part says, For the death he died, he died to sin. What is the common denominator if someone is united with Christ? It means that you have died. That you have died. Now, we may ask, what, what do you mean we have died? I thought... We are made alive in Christ, and now we are spiritually alive. What, what does it mean that we have died if we are united with Christ? Paul is talking about a particular kind of death. He has mentioned this in the passage just prior to this. Let us take a quick look at Romans 6.3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Baptism represents union with Christ. It's a symbol of the old man is dying, going into the grave, into the water, and coming out as a new creation. The old nature has died. The old nature that was headed and represented by Adam is being put to death. And we're proclaiming that in a baptism. The headship of Adam is no more. We are dying to that. And now we are alive in the headship of Christ. The old man is dead. The new nature has come. So in this context, have you and have I died? Have you died yet? Colossians 2.20 says the following. If with Christ you died to the elementary spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Similarly, Colossians 3.3 reads, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 2 Timothy 2.11 This saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Have you died yet? This question that pertains to whether your old self has died. Has your old nature died? The sinful desire that you just cannot say no to. Sinful lifestyle that delights us. Is that a thing of the past? Or is that still alive and kicking? Is that the default operating procedure of our heart? the old man. If that's the case, it's really not an old man. It's not an old nature. It's the current nature. And that's a problem. 
Has anything changed since we have been professing to be Christians? Being represented by the first Adam, we died spiritually. We isolated ourselves from God, became enemies of God. The contrast is, if by faith we trust in Christ, we repent of sin, we are now being represented by Jesus. The old nature has died. We have died to sin. And this means that the way by which sin is expressed is apparent in our lives. How is sin expressed? It's something practical. What we think, what we speak, what we do, our character. That's where we can see whether our nature has changed. Whether we are represented by the first Adam or by Jesus, the second Adam. Colossians 3, 5 reads as follows. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Here it is. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Do those desires rule me? Do those desires rule my everyday purpose? Paul is telling us that if we are united with Christ, those desires do not rule us. The feeding of our soul is no longer the pursuit of those sinful desires, but rather the things of God. Now, what this does not mean is that Christians don't sin. Because Paul is very clear when he will say in some short verses ahead of us that the things he wants to do, those things that he knows are what's going to honor God, he says, I don't do. Right? And what he hates, he actually does. So Paul acknowledges that there's no such, as, no such thing as sinful perfection that is also a heresy. So it does not mean that the Christian is sinless, but it does mean that the Christian sins less and less and less. That is sanctification. The act of us becoming convicted of our sin and by God's grace and walking with him and with his people that we become more and more like Christ and we sin less. In short, there has been a union with Christ. It is marked by the person dying Dying to self, dying to sin, dying to the desires of the old nature of which the person was a slave to. Secondly, let us take a look at the characteristics of true union with Christ. What are some signs that you have died with Christ? So there's a collection of the snippets of the verses we just read, so let us pull them all up now. It says, Romans 6, 6, the second part, it says, In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Romans 6, 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Romans 6, 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin. My brothers and sisters, the Christian 
has been set free from sin, no longer slaves to sin. The word there, being a slave to sin, is a word dulevo. It's a variation of the word dulas. But dulevo here means to be entirely dominated by some influence or person conceived of as being the legal property of another. Like somebody owns you. And the natural man is owned by a, sim a sinful nature. Owned by the desires of a sinful heart. Owned, as Jesus told the Pharisees, by their father, the devil. That's who the non-Christian is ruled by, is owned by. Now there's a typical accusation that a non-Christian would bring. And it goes something like this. I feel bad for you Christians. You guys are so restricted by all kinds of rules and regulations. And you guys don't even enjoy life. You guys are always so afraid of doing something wrong that you basically live a miserable life. Now may I say that if that is the case, you're not living like a Christian. Because first off, nothing can be further from the truth. As Christians, we rejoice, or we should rejoice, daily in thanksgiving to the blessings that the Lord has given us in Christ. We are to delight and have joy in fellowship to be united not only with Christ, but with this bride in a fellowship of Christians, of the community that God has given us in, in the local church. And yes, we are even to delight in the temporal, tangible things that the Lord has blessed us with. The ability to come together physically and enjoy a meal, enjoy our fellowship in the hobbies we enjoy, in the food that we enjoy. I think we do that well, right? We are to rejoice in that. And when we partake of those things, when we celebrate the Lord's Day, when we celebrate a birthday, when we celebrate the coming of a new baby, when we celebrate a wedding anniversary, when we celebrate the blessings of God. It used to be a joyous time. So let us not make it true that the accusation is that Christians are boring and they're always bitter and they never enjoy life. That's not true. And if it is true, we have something to repent of. Now, secondly, what the person that typically brings this accusation, what they don't realize is that the ones who are not free is them. They are enslaved to sin. They cannot stop engaging in the sin that they're engaging in. First of all, in unbelief. Second of all, in whatever desires of the flesh they have. Vices, whatever type of vice it may be, whatever type of self-fulfilling desire they pursue each day, they are slaves to their master, which is sin and Satan. The ones that cannot stop doing that is them. And we as Christians, we've been set free from that bondage. We no longer have to serve sin. They are the ones 
that live a life overcome by sin. Right? Scripture says whatever has overcome a person, that's who they serve. So there's this notion that the Scripture tells us, this overarching message in Scripture, that tells us that once we were owned by sin, but now we are no longer the property of sin, the property of the devil. We have a new owner. And the price that was paid by that new owner was very expensive. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says the following, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. My brothers and sisters, let's remember, the key of Christianity is based on spiritual truths. But those spiritual truths never remain in the spiritual realm only. They play out in the physical, in our body. We were bought at a price. It says, so glorify God in your body. Because when we are tempted, the way that we carry out those sinful desires is physically. Yes, we may sin in, in mind and and our sinful heart makes us have all these evil thoughts. But ultimately, I'm going to go and do it, right? Our bodies. A new master has bought you. If indeed you are united with Christ, the characteristics of true union with Christ is that you are not going to be ruled by that sinful nature. You are now a slave of Christ, a slave of righteousness. You hate what God hates. You love what God loves. If when you sin, you feel sorrowful because you've offended your Savior and you come to him in repentance, that's a good sign. Now, if our thought is, well, you know, grace, grace will abound. Hey, my friend, be careful. Be careful. You will not abuse God's grace. So then we can see that if we are dead to the desire of a sinful lifestyle, it no longer has dominion over us. We could say, yes, by God's grace, I have a true union with Christ. If you say, yes, my new owner is the Lord Jesus. He's my Savior. He paid the price for me. That's a true union with Christ. And if in obedience we glorify God in our bodies, by God's grace, that is a sign that indeed God has united me with Christ. By being born again. So then what are the benefits, the results of being in this union with Christ? If one has truly been united with Christ, then the following applies. And again, let's take out those snippets from the verses we have today that tell us that. Second part of Romans 6, 5 says, We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Certainly. The message of Christianity in the gospel is that we are saved by faith and that which we are promised is not something that we're crossing our fingers that hopefully it will happen. 
God tells us it is certainly, certainly you will be resurrected as Christ was. Again, spiritual truth translate to a physical reality. The second portion of verse 6, the body of sin might be brought to nothing. This body that you and I have is wasting away day by day. Someday, your body and my body is going to be buried in the grave. Okay? If we're lucky and we don't die in an accident that instantly crushes you, right? Or melts you. And even then, that body will be destructed and we will be resurrected in the glorified body following the example of the one that did that first, Jesus. The spiritual truth, certainty, we are assured that we are going to experience that as well, physically. Verse 8, we believe that we will also live with Him. It is not that we obtain a glorified body, that we are resurrected just to hang out. No. We will live with Him for His purpose, for His glory, and for our enjoyment. Yes. That will be the experience of ultimate joy. Verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead to sin, you die with Christ. Died in Christ, united with Him, not only now as children of God, but in a future state, which we are guaranteed with the promise of the resurrection. Alive to God in Christ Jesus. The truths of the Christian faith, then, we see have very real and tangible promises, benefits, when we are united with Christ. Namely, in the physical resurrection. Very often we forget that. That the Christian faith has a physical element to it. Right? If we are dead to sin... It will manifest in our everyday lives. We will not carry through the sinful desires of our flesh, our body. So that's a physical aspect of that. Secondly, if we are dead to sin, we will one day resurrect from the grave in a glorified body, physically again, to live in the presence of our Savior for eternity. Now part of this Benefits and results of being united with Christ is that we get to look as to Jesus as our example. We're not being told to follow something that hasn't been done. Romans 6:9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has a dominion over him. Will never die again. In scripture, we saw examples of people being resuscitated. Lazarus, to put an example. Lazarus is not, it's not physically alive right now. He's dying. That was a foreshadow to show the power of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, 
or what is to come. Jesus was put in the grave, but the grave couldn't contain. He resurrected, never to die again. That promise is made to you and me, to all the true believers in Christ. The death has no dominion over us. And the way we can see that now is if what leads to death, sin, does that have dominion over me now? Not that we don't trip, but does sin have dominion over me now? If we are united with Christ, the benefit is that it does not. So that promise then of being raised from the dead because sin, the grave, has no promise over us, no uh, control over us, dominion over us, Jesus exemplified in John eleven twenty five. 25. I love this verse. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives, who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Unquote. Today we are faced with that very question. My brothers and sisters, my friends, do you believe these things? Or is all this just mumbo jumbo? The scripture says if you are an unregenerate person, this is mumbo jumbo to you. This is foolishness to you. To us that are believers, it should be a reminder. It should bring a conviction of this truth. And if you're not sure, if you're in the border, and these things are starting to make sense to you, praise be to God. You are being called into understanding His Word. So what are some applications we can learn from this passage then? First, let us remember that these benefits that we talked about have a precondition. The first verse that we read today, it says, for if, if we have been united with him, if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, then we will be resurrected in a resurrection like his. Then our body of sin is being killed each day. That's our regeneration. That's our sanctification and work, which is a proof of our justification. It's a proof that we are saved. Then we are no longer enslaved to sin. Then we will live for him, through him, and be alive to God in Christ Jesus. We cannot try to be good and do all these things so that we are united with him. No. Again, remember the list I told you? Condemnation, justification, sanctification. It's in that order. We trust in Christ to be justified. And out of that comes our daily life of becoming more and more like Christ. It's conditional. If you are united with Christ. Remember, we must be born again first in order to be able to experience the life of sanctification. How can we be united with Christ? Believe the gospel. Believe that there is a holy God 
of whom you are an enemy of. There's nothing you could do to be made right with him except to trust in the one who has the perfection that is required in Christ. Repent, trust in Christ, that the benefits of Christ may be given to you. Secondly, that question we asked today, have you died yet? Have you died? Have you died with Christ? Have you died to sin? Are you owned by Christ? Or are you owned by sin? The true test for this, remember, comes not when everything's fine. The true test comes when you are being put to the test when others sin against you. Under those conditions, what is your character like? Are you being sanctified? Or does the true you come up then and say, ha ha, here's old man, here's old woman, get out of my way. Boom, your true self comes up. May it not be, my brothers and sisters, may it not be. We're going to have a foot in and a foot out. Let me give an illustration. Some of us are born in another country and we have dual citizenship. Right, so in my case, I have dual citizenship. So when I go back to my country, to where I was born, I can integrate quickly. I'm a native speaker. I know the land pretty well. So I can go integrate fast, right? And to be honest with you, when this comes up, I need to be honest that I have like a certain sense of pride, like, yeah, I have dual citizenship. Yeah, I can go back and I can interact with the people and I know the lingo and I can fit in. Right? Because many people, even if they are from another country and they go back, like they've been too Americanized now and they, they can't hang with, with the locals anymore. I can. And I kind of take some sinful pride in that. Because others can do that as well, right? Now, why am I saying this? Spiritually speaking, we are all born citizens of this wicked world, of this corrupted, fallen world. We are all born citizens of that. And the Bible tells us that those that are born again, those that are born of a new nature, become citizens of the kingdom of God. You are no longer slaves to sin. You are no longer of the world, but you are not of this world. And we're now pilgrims through this world. Here's my point. There is no such thing as having a foot in the citizenship of the world and a foot in the kingdom of God. If that is you, you are a citizen of the world. There's no dual citizenship when it comes to the kingdom of God. So we must renounce our citizenship of the world. We are to have no pride in being citizens of the world. Because if we do, like the example I gave, that I feel some pride of holding on to my old roots. Spiritually speaking, there is no such thing. And if there is, we are lost. Because we have not renounced the world. We still take the light in the world. 
A foot in and a foot out means you're out. God does not share his kingdom. God does not share his throne. Have you died yet? Lastly, there's a call to repent. God calls you to repent, to die to self, to die to sin, and to die with Christ. So that you may become united with Christ. Be born again with a new nature that God, through his Holy Spirit, will give you. I came across a quote this morning by the great Charles Spurgeon that actually applies to this last call to repent. It says, Delay is the devil's great net. All men mean to repent. Alas, they will repent one day that they did not repent at once. See that? We all know that there's things we got to deal with and we got to repent of. And we think, I'll repent. But not right now. And to that, the great Charles Spurgeon says, you will regret it one day that you didn't repent. So a call to repent, my brothers and sisters, to be convicted of the truth that we've learned today of being united with Christ and to leave the citizenship of the world behind so that we can then live to the glory of Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider how you have rescued us from sin, how you have forgiven us, how you have given us your mercy and your grace, your kindness. Lord, may we be transformed by the truth of your gospel so that we may be obedient to you so that we may be united to you in truth and that we will renounce the desires of the flesh that we would know that you have empowered us to be fulfilled in you and that this is only a little taste to come of the day that we will be resurrected physically and be with you for all eternity. Yes, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.